Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Health Nuts podcast with certified holistic nutrition consultants, Mary Vance and Caitlin Weeks. Our goal is to dispel mainstream nutrition myths and bring you the best in holistic health and real food education. So we are excited to have Sarah of the paleomom.com on with us today. We're going to be talking about autoimmune conditions and how to manage them. And this is something I'm really interested in because in my practice, I work with a lot of women, especially who are managing and, and working to reverse autoimmune disease. So very excited to have Sarah. And before we get started today, I'll read our disclaimer and then we can get started on the program. The only purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is no substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your concerns with a licensed healthcare provider. Caitlin Weeks and Mary Vance assume no liability for any of your activities in connection with this podcast. Hi, Caitlin. Are you there? Hi, Mary. How's it going? Good. Uh, how are you? Great. I'm, uh, I'm making your no-bake pumpkin gelatin muffins today. <laughs> okay. Well, that one's, that one's a little interesting, so let me know how Yeah, I'm going. looking forward to it. There, I, I love to find new ways to get my gelatin in because I am a firm believer in the healing powers of gelatin, and I'm tired of gel, uh, pumpkin pudding and chocolate pudding, even though, I mean, I could eat those every day, but... Uh, when we hang up, I'm going to give the no-bake muffins a whirl. Okay, well, I want to try it with chocolate, too. Oh, good. Well, I'm always excited for your recipe development. So what's new on your site and in your blog? Well, today I put up a giveaway with Jimmy Moore's new book, Cholesterol Clarity, and um, the Paleo Lunches on the Go from... Diana Rogers, so some lucky winner will win both of those books. And I also put the lemon jello recipe, easy lemon jello, and I also have a salmon frittata. So cool. Yeah, um, Jimmy is sending me a copy of his book too, and I'm very excited to get that. So have you read it yet? No, I didn't get my copy yet, but I'm sure it's on the way. Yeah, well, I'm excited to read that and review it. And we have Jimmy Moore as a guest coming up too in the future. Yes, I hope he breaks through the the dogma and helps some people understand yeah. that that's not the real issue is the cholesterol. Exactly. There's a lot of misconception around that. Did you write something new on your blog? I have a post on, speaking of um, gelatin, on hair loss because, I mean, for me personally, when I was experiencing hormone imbalance, my hair started to get thinner and gelatin really helped me reverse that. But, uh, you know, since my practice specializes in focusing on women's health, I work with a lot of women who have hormone imbalance and thyroid disruption. So I always am asked about best solutions for hair loss and thinning hair. So I wrote a post on that and you can find it on my site maryvancenc.com and then I also put up a post on natural solutions to handle menstrual cramps that's a big one too I hear uh, a lot of women just popping painkillers throughout their periods and obviously that's not the best solution but to figure out why 
you're having such bad cramping. So that's new on my blog, some women's health tidbits. And I'm working on a post on adrenal fatigue right now. So that's what's new with me. Great. That sounds awesome. So let's talk about what we had for breakfast. Sarah, you get to answer. You go first. Oh, I get to answer. I go first. I have the weirdest breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to put me on the spot. Um, so uh, this morning I had some leftover grass-fed beef kidney that was fried in bacon fat and homemade sauerkraut that was made with purple cabbage and carrots. And some mixed um, salad greens that I just had, like a you know organic mix um, in my crisper. And then um, I would usually have a piece of fruit for breakfast, but this morning one of my kids didn't eat all of her pancakes, and they were calling my name. And so I had um, a pancake that the pancakes are made just with um, egg and plantain. But that was like a lot of carbs for me at breakfast, so I, I didn't feel like I wanted fruit on top of that. Um, and a cup of black tea. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's, awesome. Yeah. That's kind of like my, I have to say, I my breakfasts are not, I think, typically what people eat. I am really fascinated to find out what you guys had for breakfast. Well, I love that actually you are dispelling the breakfast for breakfast myth because um most people i talk about this a lot as people are always assuming everyone's having pancakes and eggs for breakfast but i'm a big fan of dinner for breakfast so uh actually this morning interestingly my breakfast was kind of boring but i did have raw beet and ginger kraut and then i had um just organic roast beef slices that i had in my refrigerator i just got back from santa cruz last night so i don't have anything in my refrigerator i was down there working for a week so I have these organic roast beef slices, and I rolled up avocado in them and ate them with raw kraut, and then I had some blueberries after that. That sounds <laughs> and, good to me. And pu'er tea, which I'm obsessed with. I love pu'er, which is this like ancient Chinese tea that's aged for thousands of years and has all these miraculous bioorganisms in them that allow you to perform miracles during the day. So that's my... Exciting breakfast this morning. Awesome. I had a hamburger patty with uh, cumin and sea salt from Himalayan sea salt. And I had green beans with my homemade beef tallow. And I had uh, half an avocado. Very exciting for everyone. None of us had bacon and eggs. (laughs) That's right. No breakfast for breakfast around here. Yeah, my awesome. Of course. And in fact, why don't we talk about Sarah, Caitlin? Why don't you introduce our guest since now we know uh, a little bit about what she has for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Sarah, I've known about Sarah for a while. I started noticing her blog um, maybe a year ago, and I was instantly transfixed because she has autoimmune diseases like me so I wanted to know what this lady was all about so um, I th- I'm pretty sure you are a professor or a, you I know you have your PhD and 
She's lost 100 pounds doing low-carb diet. Sounds like she has a lot of similar things as me. I um, lost a lot of weight. You were, you were overweight in college, and then you lost a lot of weight. I think you've done it twice. I have done it <laughs> twice. I had a, a massive health crisis and gained all of the weight back mm-hmm. when I developed my autoimmune disease, basically. Okay. So you yeah. did. You lost 100 pounds, but then you still had this lichen planus. Yeah. Which is a skin thing, and you also had asthma and migraines, and so you once you got you did low carb, but then you you found that you had to go further and deeper into you know more autoimmune type protocol to get that to clear up, right? Yeah. So, and you're your mom with two kids, right? And yeah, I think you're from Canada. I am, but I live in the states, so my my accent only comes out rarely now. When I say avocado and cilantro, <laughs> there. That's my Canadianisms right and there. Flavors and colors. I do stick use in inappropriate places, yes. <laughs> um, so go ahead and tell us, tell us more about your journey. Um, so, yeah, I have a, a medical research background. Um, I was never a professor. I did um, two postdoctoral fellowships. Um, doing medical research when my oldest was born and I decided that I would take advantage of a program run by the National Institutes of Health that is um, specifically for women in science who want to take time off to do whatever women want to take time off to do. Um, So for me it was I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and um, and so I was allowed, I'm, I'm allowed to take eight years, so I've got two years to go because my oldest is um, six and a half. And um, I, at that time, was also, when she was born, I was uh, obese. I had lost weight in my early 20s and then um, had a massive health crisis. I was put on extremely high doses of steroids uh, and was apartment bound for months and gained back all of the weight that I had lost. Um, And then I I stayed... um, uh, it was uh, close to 300 pounds. I stayed um, overweight for about seven years. And it was when my oldest was one that I had this sort of moment of clarity when I realized I was pre-diabetic um, and uh, sort of found the, the strength to stick with a low-carb diet and lose the weight again. But I found that even though I was losing weight, I wasn't getting healthier. And I ended up having a pretty bad flare of my autoimmune disease after my second daughter was born, even though my, my weight was, was not too bad at that time. And so that's what sort of propelled me to look for answers. And that was when I came across the paleo diet. Um, I had, oh gosh, like at least a dozen different health problems. And um, just a standard paleo diet cleared up almost all of them in about two weeks. I went off six prescription medications. Um, Yeah, it was pretty miraculous. So I became very, very enthusiastic about a paleo diet, if you can imagine. I mean, it was um, issues that I had been dealing with for 12 years and were just suddenly gone. I mean, it, it was so amazing for me. So um, How did it was, you hear about paleo in the first place? In the first place, it was sort of two sources. I, Because I was doing a low-carbohydrate diet, I had had a, a, a friend from um, 
undergrad who was a Facebook friend and he was following a paleo diet and he'd said something like, Oh, you know, Hey, your photos, you look great. And I said, Oh, well, I'm eating low carb. He said, Oh, I'm doing something similar. I'm doing a paleo diet and, you know, avoiding lectins. And that was the first time I'd heard the word lectin. And I just kind of thought that sounded really extreme to me. I mean, which is funny to me now, but at the time it just seemed like, um, it, it was a much more extreme version of, of what I was doing, although now that I know more about it, it was very similar. Um, and so it was just sort of that information that was filed away. And then when I was basically surfing the internet, um, looking for food sensitivity links, because I um, also had eczema, and I know that eczema um, has a really strong correlation with food sensitivity, so I thought that maybe the autoimmune condition I have also maybe had those links. And I stumbled on a post on thepaleodiet.com that Lauren Cordain had written a few years ago um, that was specifically in response to somebody's question about lichen planus, which was the same disease that I have. And I just had those like bells of familiarity, like, oh, wait a minute, this is that guy that my friend was talking about that writes about the lectins and, you know, this is the guy who describes the paleo diet. And I just started reading everything I could find on the internet for free. I started listening to Rob Wolf's podcast and I just started like absorbing the information. And it took me two or three months of reading and, and understanding it and um, really wanting to understand the science behind it, just because that's sort of my, my background before I decided that it was something that I was going to do. And I told myself that I would try it for three months and that I would commit, you know, it was three months before my birthday. So I was basically saying, I'm going to try this until my birthday and I'll just, you know, then at the end of three months, I'll evaluate how it worked for me. And uh, two weeks in, I think I decided that I was never going to eat grains or um dairy or legumes ever again. Like it was just so dramatic for me. And it was very soon after that because I um, couldn't stop talking about it. And I found that I was talking to everybody, like the cashier and the hairdresser and my poor husband who was sort of like, yeah, but you're eating weird food. Um, I, I couldn't stop talking about it. So I sort of mentioned to my husband, like, one day I'm like, maybe I should start a, a blog so that I can write about all of the stuff that I'm learning. And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, he was so supportive. And I think he was supportive because he just wanted me to shut up about it. Like, he, I think he was really tired of, yeah, you won't believe what I learned today about, you know, about, you know, uh, you know, wheat germaglutinin or, you know, whatever it was that I was, I was, because I was just my own curiosity. I was really delving into the scientific concepts like really early on in my journey. And, um, the blog just then really, you know, grew very organically, but, uh, very quickly. And, um, I mean, that's not even two years ago. I actually, um, this week I'm hitting my two year paleo anniversary. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, um, well, I think your blog is unique because, you know, you, you do have that science background and so many people don't have the ability or, or the time to write about that. And, you know, it's really a, a blessing for all of us. So thank you for doing that. 
Well, thanks. I, I basically just write about what I'm interested in, which is why my blog is such a mix. Because it's, you know, it's science, but it's also practical and how to. Uh, it's also sort of how to deal with, you know, how to raise paleo kids and, and deal with that side. And then it's also recipes. But it's it's just been like the topics that I'm researching for my own interest, which is why there's so much autoimmune disease information on my blog, because it's been my own battles with autoimmune disease that keeps having me, you know, tweak what I'm doing and um, delve even further into the science. And that, I mean, that's why there's that much information on it. It's purely because that's my own my own journey and the the things that I'm interested in you know when it's time for me to sit down and write something well congrats yeah that uh, I love your website and I actually before we decided to have you as a guest on our podcast, I have frequently sent specifics of the autoimmune program that you include on your website to my clients who are first learning about how to manage this so I've been using your website for info for a long time. Oh, that's great. Thank you. So let's get into our questions. I got some good reader questions that are really interesting, and we have a lot of questions for you um, that we want you to expand upon. So just to get started, tell us a little bit about the basics of the autoimmune protocol and, and how it can help manage autoimmune conditions. So the autoimmune protocol is basically a modification of a, of a basic standard paleo diet. So you start with all of the same concepts as a standard paleo diet, which, you know, can sort of really quickly be summarized as, you know, no grains, no legumes. Um, in the autoimmune protocol, there's no dairy, even a high quality grass fed dairy that some people would include on a standard paleo diet. Um, no refined, um, oils or sugars and um, no processed foods. And then there's also a really, really strong focus, same as there's in a paleo diet, on um, balancing omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid intake. What the autoimmune protocol does is it takes out some of the gray area foods that are tolerated by a lot of people, so they're typically included in a paleo diet, but tend to be problematic. Um, in people who are dealing with autoimmune or immune diseases. Um, So those include nightshades, nuts and seeds, um, alcohol, and uh, eggs. And so those those foods are also removed. And then um, the other, like, huge part of the autoimmune protocol that I think is something that has really evolved, especially since Terry Wall's work, is... The shift in focus, not just from taking things out that might be stimulating the immune system or um, continuing, uh, you know, gut dysbiosis or, or leaky gut problems. It's it's not just about taking those things out. It's about adding really nutrient dense foods back in, and this comes from the understanding that the immune system actually relies on a huge number of nutrients to function properly. And a lot of the vitamins and minerals that we get from our diet are immune regulators. So they actually help um, regulate. So that means keep the immune system from getting overstimulated, but keep it from getting suppressed. So keep the immune system working optimally. So we focus on eating really nutrient-dense foods to supply our bodies with all of those nutrients to help regulate the immune system. So that means we're also focusing on eating more organ meat, 
more seafood, lots and lots of vegetables, and um, fruit with the caveat of of not over-consuming fructose because consuming too much fructose can be a problem um, in itself. So there's this whole... There's the part of the sort of the extra things that you avoid, but then there's the whole part of like really trying to get the best quality food we can, the most variety that we can, and really incorporating these super nutrient-dense foods that I think are still often overlooked in the paleo community as a whole. I mean, there's certainly... You don't get them in chicken breasts, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. I mean, there's certainly... um, Because we are really such a diverse community now, I mean... Even two years ago, I don't think paleo was quite as diverse as it is now. Um, you are starting to get a lot more people who are really getting into the um, sort of ecological aspects of eating snout's tail and the sustain- environmental sustainability um, and, and those sorts of aspects. When it comes to autoimmune disease, it's really about um, balancing nutrients and eating the most nutrient-dense parts of the animals, which are the organ meats so um well also i mean the the standard american diet is is almost the opposite it it blocks mineral absorption and aggravates the immune system right so we've been eating that for most of our lives so it's a it's a big big shift for people who are coming from a standard american diet to to jump into the autoimmune protocol it's a it's a little bit, I mean, it can be overwhelming depending on how a person is implementing a paleo diet. Um, it can be still pretty overwhelming to look at the things that need to be omitted. And, and there are a lot of people who do um, feel intimidated by, you know, things like oysters and liver. Don't you um, think someone who uh, would, should do regular paleo for a while and then try it because I've, I, I know with my clients before, I would always say, well, wh- why don't you just do regular, get used to it, then go into it once you get your head wrapped around it. Because I think it, it could just be overwhelming and then they just kind of freak out and give up, you know. Yeah, I typically recommend that people start with regular paleo because for a lot of people with autoimmune disease, that's actually enough. Like not everybody needs to go that extra step. But there's the the caveat of there are some people who are really, like if you're in the middle of a health crisis and you're really, really sick, you don't necessarily have the time to play around with standard paleo. So there's there's definitely exceptions Mm -hmm. to that rule. And I think um, I try and encourage people to recognize themselves and what works for them in terms of... um, transitioning because I think some people do really, really well with jumping in with both feet and just, you know, okay, what do I eat? What do I not eat? Okay, I'm just going to do it. And it's sort of that whole 30 philosophy applied to the autoimmune protocol. Um, And I think some people really, you know, do well with that sort of firm set of rules and I'm not going to cheat and this is what I'm going to do. And I think there's other people who just do better with I'm going to t- tackle this in baby steps. And the first thing I'm going to do is give up gluten. And then I'm going to work on the rest of my grains. And then I'm going to work on dairy. And and then they get to standard paleo. And then they go, okay, well, next thing I'm going to cut out is nightshades. And the next thing I'm going to cut out is nuts and seeds. And they just do it in pieces. And I think that just takes recognizing what kind of person you are. And um, whether or not you're a person who does better with change taken in small steps. Or if you're a person who does better with change sort of rip off the band-aid and get through the adjustment and then 
be on the other side. And I think different approaches work for different people. Well, that kind of leads to the next question. Who should try the autoimmune protocol and for, and how long should somebody do it? So I think that anybody who is having continuing health issues on a standard paleo diet, whether they're diagnosed as autoimmune in nature or not, because a lot of people have a lot of people have autoimmune disease but don't have a diagnosis of autoimmune disease. Um, so I think anybody who's just really not feeling well um, on a standard paleo diet and due to health issues. I mean, there's there's other ways that you can tweak a paleo diet. If you're you know highly athletic, you might not be eating enough carbs, for example. But if you're dealing with health issues, if you're dealing with um, especially things like fatigue or aches, not sleeping well, um, any kind of skin issues, um, resistance to weight loss or resistance to weight gain. Um, those are kinds of things that, that should be a, a bit of a, a red flag that maybe trying out the autoimmune protocol is a, is a good idea. And then definitely anybody with a diagnosed autoimmune condition that is not seeing dramatic improvement on a standard paleo diet or anybody with a diagnosed immune-related disease, like something like allergies or asthma, that is not seeing dramatic improvement on a, on a standard paleo diet. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, a, a, it really applies to a really, really broad spectrum of people because a lot of uh, most chronic illness, if not all chronic illness, has its roots in inflammation, which is an immune system that's not working properly. Um, well, so before you go on into inflammation, yeah. just how long, how long? Can people expect? I would... Um, it's highly variable how long it takes somebody to notice a difference. So I would generally recommend somebody with autoimmune disease give the autoimmune protocol at least two to three months, if not four. Somebody who is dealing with, you know, they just feel like they're not, they're not feeling their best and they're playing with the autoimmune protocol to see if they feel any better on it. Um, that in that kind of case, I think a month is fine. I think even two weeks. I mean, in that case, you're really using the autoimmune protocol as an elimination diet um, to just figure out what you know foods you're currently eating are not working for you. But if you are someone with autoimmune disease, some people notice really dramatic improvement, like in two days. Um, but there are a lot of autoimmune diseases, especially things like skin conditions. You know, skin is a really low priority organ for your body to heal. And you need to heal internally really substantially before your body starts healing your skin. So skin conditions, especially, um, you know, joint diseases, which I mean, a lot of autoimmune diseases affect skin and connective tissue and joints, um, those those things tend to be slower to see to see progress. I mean, I, you should be seeing some slow improvement over those three to four months, but I definitely think that um, people need to go into it with a bit more of a long term plan than I'm going to try this for thirty days. So I heard you say inflammation, which is kind of the key word here, and I'm curious to hear more information about why these particular foods contribute to inflammation and how the autoimmune protocol would help manage that inflammation that 
often accompanies autoimmune disease. Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, there's just looking at the extra foods that are omitted, they are all omitted because they have the possibility of um, stimulating the immune system, of um, potentially causing increased leaky gut issues. Um, And so they all actually have sort of different things going on with them. With nightshades, it's because of the glycoalkaloid content. Um, These are a class of um, chemicals that are detergent-like in nature. They make oil and water mix. They're very, very good at getting across the the gut barrier, and they have adjuvant properties, so they stimulate the immune system. And they're um, probably not... um, a problem in most people, especially if you have a healthy gut, but it seems to be a a very, very common trigger for people with autoimmune disease. So if you can just think of, you know, one of the big things with autoimmune disease is that you have a genetic susceptibility. The genetic susceptibility is not just to your immune system losing the ability to know what to attack. I mean, it's also, the genetic susceptibility also means that Um, your body gets inflamed more easily that, say, the junctions between the cells that line your gut open up more easily. So um, all of these sort of gray area foods that tend to be foods that a lot of people tolerate tend to cause sort of have magnified issues in people with autoimmune disease. With eggs, it really is... um, Eggs are a common food sensitivity, a common allergy, but also they have a protein in the egg white called lysozyme, which is also very, very good at getting across the gut barrier. And it does this extra thing where it binds to proteins, um, and it especially likes to bind to bacterial proteins in the gut, and it actually helps transport those across the gut barrier. So in a healthy person... The amount that's getting across the gut is certainly enough that the immune system can handle. The immune system's not getting overly ramped up. But in a person with autoimmune disease, when you already have this like super overstimulated immune system, that extra you know, protein that's intact, that's getting across the gut, that's not supposed to, with bacterial proteins that are piggybacking on it, causes problems. Um, with nuts and seeds, it comes down to nuts and seeds also have... Um, lectins, sort of similar to, to grains, but um, they're, they're not as, um, they don't interact as strongly with the gut barrier, which is why most people can tolerate them very, very well. Um, but it, they are, um, tend to be a problem in people with autoimmune disease. They also have a fairly high amount of anti-nutrients because they are the seeds of plants and those Um, Anything that is a reproductive organ of a plant is trying to protect itself because it's protecting the life of the plant. Um, So they tend to have things like um, phytic acid. Um, They tend to have things like protease inhibitors that inhibit digestion. Um, And then they also are are very common food allergies and food sensitivities. Um, Did I miss one? Did I miss? What did I miss? Well, the obvious gluten, dairy... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's fairly well understood in, in, the, in the paleo community. Um, but uh, with uh, grains and legumes, it comes down to two types of lectins, um, because not all lectins are, are bad, but there's sort of certain ones that interact really strongly with the gut barrier 
um, have the ability to cross the gut barrier intact, which is not supposed to happen. And our bodies are supposed to digest proteins into individual amino acids, and then the amino acids are transported across. When you cross an intact protein or a fragment of a protein, that stimulates the immune system because it's not supposed to be there. Um, so um, the two classes of lectins that are a problem in uh, grains, and this also includes things like pseudograins like quinoa and buckwheat and uh, legumes, are... Um, prolamines, which is like gluten, is, is sort of the best understood prolamine, and agglutinins, which wheat germaglutinin is the best understood agglutinin. And these are um, very, very sneaky proteins. They're very, very good at crossing the gut barrier. They have multiple ways of crossing the gut barrier, some that happen in people with a you know, genetic susceptibility, like an autoimmune disease, and some which happen in everybody. And then they are really, really potent immune stimulators. I mean, wheat germaglutinin has been um, investigated for use as a drug-carrying molecule. It is so good at getting across the gut barrier hmm. um, that, that people are like, well, if we just take our drug that's non-absorbable and we stick it to wheat germaglutinin, wheat germaglutinin will take it across the gut barrier for us. <laughs> and, um, you know, the... Glycoalkaloids like alpha tomatine, which is um, the glycoalkaloid in tomatoes, has been investigated for use as an adjuvant in vaccines. Um, and adjuvants are added to vaccines to ramp up the immune response because the virus that's put in vaccines is either dead or inactive. So in order to develop immunity, you need to also stimulate the immune system. So we're looking at putting in you know, alpha tomatine from tomatoes into vaccines to stimulate the immune system. Isn't that also the case with saponins from quinoa or, yeah? Yes. So um, I'm blanking on the specific, um, I'm blanking on the specific name. But, yeah, so, I mean, in fact, a lot of the proteins that we know are problematic from a health perspective that cause inflammation in grains and legumes are being isolated and investigated for, for drug use. And um, when you look at, I mean, when you look at also the people who are raising alarm bells, like people who are writing papers saying there's no way we should be using wheat germaglutinin as um, a, a drug delivery protein because of all the problems associated with wheat germaglutinin consumption. And you look at that and you go, you know, I have a strong suspicion that if wheat was trying to be approved as a food inserted into the food supply now because of everything we know about gluten and wheat germaglutinin, I don't think it would get approved. Like, <laughs> I, like, I think it would have a really hard time being called a food. It depends on who's paying for this study, I guess. Well, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. So, Sarah, what improvements do you see when people have been following the autoimmune protocol for, you know, 30 to 60 days, and I'm especially wondering about the weight loss aspect. Um, yeah, it, I mean, improvements range from, you know, somebody showing some, you know, measurable, but, you know, noticeable, but gradual, slow improvement in the symptoms of their disease to people's diseases going into complete remission and, you know, basically having complete health turnarounds. And, the, you know, both extremes are sort of 
possible within that time frame. Um, in terms of weight loss, when people are um, severely overweight, they tend to lose weight pretty effortlessly um, following the autoimmune protocol. But the autoimmune protocol is not a weight loss diet, and it's not designed to help people lose weight. It's designed to heal the gut. It's designed to regulate the immune system. It's designed to um, address micronutrient deficiencies um, and sometimes micronutrient um, excesses, which can also happen in some autoimmune diseases. And so what happens is, um, especially when you're talking about somebody who has um, weight gain that's related to all of the things that are going on in their disease, whether that's from hormone dysregulation or um, just from the inflammation, um, you know, people will have appetite stimulation caused by micronutrient deficiency. So when you address the micronutrient deficiency, you also regulate appetite. So when people are, are, you know, really overweight, they tend to, you know, as their bodies heal, they tend to lose weight pretty easily. There's a subset of people who will gain a little bit of weight. It's usually like five to 10 pounds when they first start the autoimmune protocol. And this seems to be something to do with the micronutrient deficiencies that um, people's bodies are so desperate for these nutrients that when they start feeding them nutrients, the the body ends up just craving more and they end up stimulating hunger and then it kind of levels out and then they'll start losing weight. Um, But the opposite is true too. So people who are underweight, as they start healing, absorbing more nutrients from their food, they'll start to gain weight. So it's not really, I I don't like to bill it as a weight loss diet. Um, Weight regulation or weight normalization sort of happens as a byproduct of healing. So it just kind of goes along with it, but it's kind of a side effect. I guess I'm wondering about people who maybe have been on regular paleo for a long time. Do they see improvements some people, go ahead. Yeah, certainly, certainly, some people do, um, especially when the reasons for their weight have you know is is linked with the health condition that they're addressing. Um, so sometimes it's as simple as you know food sensitivities causing hormone imbalances that are causing you know changes in metabolism that are causing them to be heavier. And when you take out those foods, you know their body regulates those hormones and, and the weight just starts coming off. Um, sometimes it's it's also part of the lifestyle aspects of the autoimmune protocol. So, you know, when I'm in, in my book, when I discuss all of the things to, you know, eat, stop eating and eat more of, um, it's not in isolation. It's also with lifestyle recommendations like getting more sleep and protecting circadian rhythms and managing stress and getting um, more sort of low and moderately intense activity, but avoiding intense activity. And all of those things also help regulate hormones that make it really effortless for people to lose weight. So um, I've had um, emails from people who, you know, lose tremendous amounts of weight, you know, really, really quickly when they first start the autoimmune protocol. And I've had emails from people who are really frustrated that they go on the autoimmune protocol expecting to lose weight and they lose you know, very modest amounts or, or they gain a little bit. 
So what do you think, I mean, besides the obvious challenges for people who find that eliminating, you know, what are perceived as, quote, healthy foods, and that's often what I get from people when I tell them, you know, eggs is a big one. We all think that eggs are so healthy, and you described perfectly how in the whites, you know, there are anti-nutrients in there that can cause a lot of inflammation. But what do you think the biggest challenges are for people on the autoimmune protocol while they're doing it? I think... The biggest challenge right now is the amount of conflicting information that's out there, Um, the amount of recipes being posted on blogs and labeled as autoimmune protocol friendly, even though they use, you know, clearly, you know, mustard or eggs or um, seeds, and it's that person's opinion that, oh, but that's not a problem. Yeah. There's a lot of conflicting information about what vegetables are good or bad. For example, people with um, autoimmune thyroid disorders like Hashimoto's or Graves are are often recommended that they avoid things like sauerkraut and cabbage and broccoli and all these cruciferous vegetables because of the goitrogenic properties. And when you actually evaluate the scientific literature, um, as long as these people aren't iodine deficient... There's no good reason to avoid those vegetables. And actually, these vegetables can help regulate thyroid function, um, in addition to containing all kinds of amazing nutrients that support immune function. So I think that right now, the biggest challenge for people is actually figuring out what to eat and what not to eat. Um, And that's like the biggest thing that I'm hoping my book will sort of, you know, be the I've gone into so much scientific detail. I have 1,200 scientific references in the book, um, and I read over 3,000 papers researching this book. Wow. So, um, the I'm basically I've taken all of these issues and I've gone through the medical literature and I've dissected it and figured out what the real answer is. So I'm hoping that this will sort of take away that um, that confusion. Um, You know, I think people get really, really scared of what vegetables are good. You know, by the time you start talking about FODMAPs, by the time you start, um, you know, potentially incorporating, you know, GAPS or SCD type concepts into the autoimmune protocol, which I don't think are a need to be included in the autoimmune protocol. By the time you start talking about, you know, people get, um, you know, we'll have other food sensitivities like salicylate sensitivity, although there's no information in the medical literature saying that avoiding salicylate foods is at all helpful with salicylate um, sensitivity. Um, there's no evidence in the medical literature that avoiding oxalates is um, recommended for anybody, even people with kidney disease or gout. So there's a lot of these sorts of you know, broad classes of vegetables that people will go, okay, well, I'm going to do the autoimmune protocol, but I, I won't have FODMAPs, which that I do recommend for people with um, gastrointestinal symptoms because of the huge body of literature showing low FODMAP um, diet approaches being beneficial. But then I won't have FODMAPs, and I won't have starches because I'm going to do GAPs at the same time, and I won't have salicylates because um, I do have a problem with aspirin, and I won't have oxalates because they're an anti-nutrient, and they end up with no vegetables that they can eat. And vegetables are such a huge part of, like, the nutrient density of the autoimmune protocol. And so um, I've really broken down, like, all of these concepts in my book. And, and the only one that I recommend anybody start with 
is uh, a low FODMAP diet, and that's only for people with gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, you know, I think, ev- and clearly we already talked about no nightshades, um, but I think all other vegetables, I recommend lots and lots of them and lots of variety. Um, and so I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. Once people get through the rules, the next biggest challenge is what do they eat for breakfast? <laughs> Well, I mean, we've talked about that a lot. I mean, people just need to get over the whole idea of breakfast foods. It's just not, it's just the first thing you really need to get over with paleo. Um, If you're going to do it for a lifestyle, I think. So let's say somebody's done autoimmune for three months and then they're feeling better. Maybe their eczema has gone away or um, their thyroid's better or something like that and then what do they do to gradually introduce foods reintroduce certain things um so i think you know i generally recommend that people wait to try reintroductions until they see that substantial improvement and they feel good and they feel ready um and if somebody doesn't feel tempted by foods they've cut out by that point then there's no good reason um, there are only really two foods that are omitted on the autoimmune protocol that are part of a standard paleo diet that really have substantial nutrient density that's um, co- a compelling reason to add them back in. And that is um, grass-fed dairy fats, so grass-fed butter or grass-fed ghee, and um, pasture-raised egg yolks. And those, you know, they really do have some great you know, vitamins. So they, they really do have that kind of compelling reason to, to potentially try them. Um, other than that, I mean, it's sort of a quality of life issue. You know, if you really feel like being able to add some nuts into your life is going to make it so much easier to keep going. So for those reintroductions, I suggest one at a time, um, every four to five days, you have one day where you eat the food several times in a day, eating a little bit more every time you eat it, and you monitor yourself for symptoms over the next five days because especially food um, intolerance or food sensitivity type symptoms um, can take a couple of days to really show up. And you look for everything. You look for symptoms of your disease, but you look for things like headaches or uh, skin changes difficulty sleeping, um, moodiness, feeling tired, um, Constitution. Uh, and, and any kind of changes in bowel habits, any kind of sensations like gastrointestinal, you know, whether it's not even just a stomach ache, but just, um, you know, that, that early bloated feeling where you, you just, your abdomen feels a little bit, um, firmer to you and you weren't doing extra sit-ups. Um, so, any kinds of those symptoms, acne, uh, they can all be related to a food sensitivity. So I don't recommend doing any kind of reintroduction when you're stressed, when you're not getting enough sleep, if there's things, you know, if you have a new baby or something like that that's, you know, taking away from your sleep, when you have any kind of cold, you know, any of those things that are going to make it really hard to interpret whether or not how you're feeling is coming from the food you reintroduced or coming from other um, ex- external factors. So one at a time. Um, in my book, I, I have a suggested order that basically takes into account um, 
the, the nutrient density, sort of like the value of the food and how good it, like whether or not adding that food back into your diet would actually provide you with some worthwhile nutrition. And then also it takes into account how likely it is that food might be a problem. So things that are introduced first, again, it's like pastured egg yolks, um, grass-fed ghee, um, and then things like seed-based spices, um, nut and seed oils, like walnut oil or macadamia nut oil. And then you kind of get into, you know, whole seeds, then sort of coffee, then maybe occasional alcoholic beverages. And I leave nightshades until the very end. So I'm curious, you know, in terms of supplementation and, and how far you can go with food, uh, I know in Datis Karazian's book about the thyroid and he talks about Hashimoto's autoimmunity and how there are specific constituents in, for example, medicinal mushrooms that can help manage immune overactivity. But do you have any specific supplements that you find are necessary or help people with autoimmune disease? Um, I think there are far more supplements that have the capacity to hinder healing than there are supplements that can potentially help. So when you look at things like um, the medicinal mushroom extracts that you just mentioned, um, they stimulate a particular subset of the adaptive immune system. And so if you're dealing with an autoimmune disease that often goes um, along with that particular subset of the adaptive immune system being suppressed, then stimulating it can help some people. But there's no firm rules with um, autoimmune diseases being, this is where you get into um, Th1 and Th2 dominance. Mm -hmm. It's a really outdated idea. Um, It comes from back in the days when we thought the adaptive immune system was only Th1 and Th2. And before we knew about Th9, Th17, and Th22. And before we really understood how important Th3 was in in suppressing and regulating Th1, Th2, Th9, Th17, and Th22. Um, And before we understood that there were three different types of regulatory T cells. Um, And before we understood that all of those regulatory T cells require vitamin D and vitamin A in order to function, and that a certain subset of them only function while you're sleeping at night. So, you know, it's, it's such a complicated system. And the idea of taking uh, medicinal to stimulate one part of it, um, it, it does help some people, but in a lot of people, it causes way more problems. And even um, Dr. Krasian is pulling away from those kinds of strategies, and he's using them with much more caution and, and changing his, his testing um, beforehand to um, determine what type of... of supplements might be used. Um, so in terms of the sort of immune balancing, I, I'm not a fan. Um, in terms of things like adaptogenic herbs, um, most of them are immune stimulators, which is unfortunate because um, it really puts the onus on the individual to manage stress and sleep and um, really do all the lifestyle things rather than relying on adaptogens for protecting adrenal function. Um, I do like digestive support supplements. I think that especially when people are not seeing the, 
the progress that they would like to see, um, sometimes you end up with this sort of vicious cycle of your body needs these nutrients in order to heal, but it can't absorb the nutrients because of how damaged it is. And so when you add digestive support supplements, um, and mostly like digestive enzymes and ox bile, I think there's a, a lot of cases where adding uh, hydrochloric acid supplements are contraindicated. So I definitely recommend anybody thinking about hydrochloric acid supplements consult with a healthcare provider first. Um, but adding digestive enzymes and ox bile can really help sort of stimulate that. You know, it helps sort of digest your food for you a little bit, which can increase absorption, which can then sort of get kickstart healing. Um, I really think that as a general rule, playing with supplements, I mean, even things like L-glutamine can help tighten up the tight junctions between epithelial cells, but in some people it causes them to have um, a reaction that's typically thought to be from the L-glutamine being converted into free glutamate, which is um, a conversion that shouldn't be happening, but it, it seems to happen in, in many people. And they get these crazy anxiety, heart racing um, type reactions to it. So um, other than digestive enzymes, um, potentially, you know, if, if somebody is not tolerating fermented foods uh, as a source of probiotics, potentially adding a probiotic supplement I, I really like soil-based organisms, which a lot of people are not getting exposed to, depending on where you buy um, your vegetables and whether or not you like to roll around in the dirt. Um, <laughs> so I, I like soil-based organisms, and um, I like magnesium for most people. And that really comes down to um, the type of lifestyle that most of us live causes stress. I mean, just having an alarm clock causes stress. Just having lights on um, in your house at night causes stress. And our bodies use up magnesium when we're stressed. And magnesium is a really, really tough mineral to overdo because it's not very absorbable. So I do like magnesium except for in people with chronic diarrhea because it can make it worse. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I really, I, I mean, I, I go through, I think, 50 different supplements in my book. Um, and really sort of talk about who they might be good for um, and, and um, when to consider them and, and what tests you might want to do before you take them um, and what to watch for in terms of contraindications. But um, as a general rule, I actually really think that you can go much, much farther, much, much safer by just focusing on nutrient-dense foods and getting enough sleep and managing stress and spending some time outside during the day and getting some activity. <laughs> well, um, I like your style, saving money. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, <laughs> just really quickly, if because um, we want to try to let you get back to your family. Uh, real, what I notice, you know, you, you do eat some carbs, and I know a lot of people come into this from a lower carb perspective and you know I know there's some squashes and different fruits and things that that are allowed on the autoimmune protocol and I was just wondering you know how do people figure out and and what is your take on you know how many carbs people should eat yeah I don't like giving people a range but mm -hmm. um here is 
what I think is really important. It's really important to regulate blood sugar. So um, that means something different for different people in terms of carb intake. So if someone's not sure, I would rather see them get a glucometer and test their blood sugar after they eat um, and see where they're at when they eat you know, plantain with their meal versus uh, a cup of blueberries with their meal and just see how that affects them. Because regulating blood sugar is, is a really important concept. But, you know, every single fruit and vegetable that is included on the autoimmune protocol, including plantains, which are a really dense carbohydrate source, they all have a low or moderate glycemic loads. The only thing that's not outright banned that has a high glycemic load is dried fruit. So I do definitely recommend like extreme caution with dried fruit, fruit because it has a high glycemic load. But what that means is, you know, really if you're eating a balanced meal, if you're putting different kinds of vegetables on your plate, so it's not all just, you know, pork chop and plantain, but you've got some broccoli and maybe a, a green salad there as well. Um, that if you're just eating balanced meals and you're eating until you're full, it's really hard unless you have diabetes or um, metabolic syndrome or something like that. It's really hard to, to overdo the carbohydrates. And I have really, um, I think like more and more people in the paleo community and pulling away from um, my history. I mean, I came to this from low carb and I came into paleo with a low carb bias and I am really pulling away from that now because of my much more detailed understanding of how foods with carbohydrates in them um, regulate hunger hormones, which regulate the immune system, but also the importance of things like insulin in thyroid function. Because insulin is actually required for um, T4 to T3 conversion. And so if you go too low carb, that is really, really um, strenuous on the thyroid. It also doesn't make for really good ghrelin regulation. And you know everyone talks about <laughs> insulin and leptin, but nobody's really talking about ghrelin. And ghrelin is an incredibly important hormone to be regulating. So, um, so I think that going low carb, especially for people with autoimmune disease that you know very, very typically have problems with their cortisol, going too low carb can be really, really stressful on the body. So I kind of say, you know, eat some carbohydrates, see how you feel. If you think you're overdoing it, measure your blood sugar. Um, but, you know, keep your blood sugar regulated. I think that if I was to put a range on it, I would say most people do really well somewhere between, say, 75 and 200 grams a day. Um, mm-hmm. I I mean, I personally am probably around 150 grams a day, um, which is really high carbohydrate consumption compared to where I was, you know, two years ago as I was coming into paleo. Yeah. Well, um, also adding a lot of fat, right, will help bring down the glycemic index. Um, A lot of fat and eating, but just eating whole food sources. I mean, I don't like looking at glycemic index so much as glycemic load. All right. The, the difference really is glycemic load is sort of corrected for how carbohydrate-dense a food is. So you look at, like, watermelon. Watermelon has a really high glycemic index, but a super low glycemic load. So even though the sugars in watermelon impact your blood sugar really quickly, there's not that many sugar, that, not that much sugar in the watermelon. So you, can, you have to eat a lot of watermelon before you actually impact 
your blood sugar. So, you know, and that's, it would be different if, um, someone was say having a snack of, you know, mangoes. Um, but you know, when you talk about eating a, a meal that includes a protein, a fat and, um, and a carbohydrate, um, except for the cases of, of diabetes or, um, metabolic syndrome where people have, you know, decreased insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, I think it's really hard to, to overdo the, the carbohydrates. So you kind of have to try to do it. And, um, you know, we've, al- we've already, by just going on a standard paleo diet, we've cut out the foods that are really problematic from a blood sugar regulation standpoint for most people. Right. Well, we do have a reader question or two here, Sarah, that we... This one's a good one that I would like to hear the answer to. And then um, we will unfortunately head towards the end because I'm really enjoying all of this information. <laughs> keep talking about it. But I do have a question here from a reader that I'd like to address. And she says, how does autoimmunity affect fertility? And should we avoid certain foods that are touted as fertility foods, specifically egg yolks, butter, and raw milk, if we have an autoimmune condition but are hoping to conceive? Um, so infertility is actually one of those, um, sort of symptoms that will get a doctor thinking about doing tests for autoimmune diseases. It's actually a fairly common symptom of, um, a lot of autoimmune diseases and it's considered one of the, um, sort of red flags. Like there's this list of symptoms that if you have any of these symptoms, you may have an autoimmune disease and fertility problems is, is one of them. Um, and especially given the, the link between, um, fertility and thyroid function and how common subclinical thyroid, um, or subclinical hypothyroidism is in autoimmune disease. It's, it's kind of not really a surprise when you start to look at sort of how these hormone systems interact, that there's, um, that there's a link. Um, in terms of like avoiding fertility foods, um, I mean, those foods are considered fertility foods because of the vitamins and minerals they have. Um, they also have some issues that might be a problem for people with autoimmune disease, which is why they aren't included in the autoimmune protocol. But once you sort of get beyond that initial healing phase and you start trying reintroductions, they, I mean, they're really nutrient dense foods. The foods that I think, um, are probably more important to avoid would be the ones that are, um, uh, really concentrated sources of phytoestrogens like flaxseed. I mean, that I don't think I would recommend, um, anybody reintroduce. There's, for example, some um, some studies, and there's there's definitely conflicting studies, and it, it's not super super clear in the medical literature. But there's a, a, a pretty good body of work showing that um, stevia binds with androgen receptors and may be affecting fertility. So I, I wouldn't certainly, if you have fertility problems, I wouldn't recommend using stevia as a sweetener. Um, and so there's there's some of those things. Um, but really, you know, the fertility aspects, because they're so linked with hormones, which are so linked with the immune system, when you start tackling the autoimmune protocol and you start addressing those things, um, 
either the fertility again should, should fix itself. Again, you know, with fertility, it's really, really important to focus on sleep and stress management and having fun. Um, and having orgasms, um, mm-hmm. I'm supporting that. Um, all of those things have been shown to be really, really important for hormone regulation, which is, you know, a key part of um, of fertility. Did that I answer that question? Or I was going to yeah. say that's a great answer because I've actually gotten that question in my practice. If you are on an autoimmune protocol, I mean, these foods are supposed to have these amazing nutritive benefits, and after you become pregnant, should you eat them? Because they might serve the baby well, and I think that's a really muddy area for people. So I like that answer. Cool. Um, let's kind of. This is kind of a good one to wrap up. Uh, I was just wondering more about, you know, kind of mindset, and you know, how does how does that come into play with healing from an autoimmune disease? I think sometimes we just focus in our, you know, nutrition, we just think is the cure-all for everything, and we overlook the other mind-body aspects. Well, I definitely think that having a um, positive attitude, I mean, or a, it's kind of different than having optimism, but just having um having that empowered sense that what you're doing is, um, it's a really powerful way of improving your health and it's more powerful than any drug and it doesn't have side effects. Um, and it is something that you can do for your entire life. Um, and I think that recognizing that and having that kind of positive attitude can be, it's not just helpful in, in, um, getting through the day to day, but you know, there's some really interesting medical studies um, in cancer patients showing that having a positive attitude, which is different than having optimism, but having a positive attitude affects survival. And I think it's the same. I mean, even though it hasn't been explicitly studied in autoimmune disease, I think it's the same. I think that being able to tackle the challenges of a restricted diet, because let's face it, it's challenging, um, and being able to tackle the challenges of different lifestyle priorities, it is really tough to force yourself to go to bed early. Um, there's things that people want to do. There's Facebook and late night TV shows. And um, our society as a whole is, is really, really good at putting sleep at the bottom of the priority list. And if you have autoimmune disease, you have to stop doing that. And so, um, you know, when you look at making these really, really big changes to your life to heal your body, um, having a positive attitude and having, a, a, having that or knowing that what you are doing is the best thing that you could possibly do for yourself, I think it makes it easier. I, and I think that's, um, I, I think it's a really important strategy and it's, it's easier for some people than others. Like for some people it just comes naturally to just, you know, be really positive. And some people really need to find strategies to sort of shift their mindset and shift their, um, sort of, uh, emotional reactions to things. Um, and, and, and that, comes with sort of often with stress management techniques. So learning things like how to meditate or do um, diaphragmatic breathing techniques, which is very, very similar to meditation, but it's um, 
sort of just a, it's a really just a separate sort of, it's a breathing technique that helps calm the brain. Um, doing things like, you know, finding activities that are stress relieving, all of those things can really help shift mindset. And I think it's, it's really important. And I'm sure you write about those a lot in your new book. So tell us I about do. that. Yeah, tell us um, about the book. Very excited. Can I tell you about my book, sir? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the paleo approach is coming out this fall, and uh, it goes through in um, great detail the science behind the diet and lifestyle recommendations in the autoimmune protocol, and. Um, I have put a lot of effort into explaining the science in a very approachable way. I'm hoping in a way that um, anybody can can understand. I'm really hoping also, though, to bridge the gap between the patient and the doctor. So um, that's why my book has 1,200 citations. Um, and it goes through uh, the what not to do, but the what to do. It goes through diet and lifestyle, things like regulating hunger hormones, goes through um, troubleshooting, supplements and all the way into reintroducing foods. It has complete food lists. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping that it'll just be like a just tremendous resource for anyone with autoimmune disease. Uh, my other book is coming out. I, I, I don't think the date's been finalized, but I think right now it's tentatively early February and it is the paleo approach cookbook. Um, when I originally, um, started on this project, I was hoping to be able to include everything all together as a sort of an all-in-one guide. And it um, became uh, roughly, <laughs> it, it was estimated to be 900 pages and we combined <laughs> 480. <laughs> wow. So um, it became, clearly it was way too big to bind. And so the choice became um, cutting more than half of the material out or dividing it into two books, um, which now that the decision has been divided to divide it into two books seems a little bit more obvious, but it was actually a really difficult decision to make. Um, so the companion cookbook is uh, going to be, it's going to summarize the rules, but not go into the science. So for people who don't actually care about the reasons why there is another book coming in February, that's just going to tell you what to do. Um, and it has 150 recipes and, uh, and it's going to have meal plans and, uh, Again, sort of food lists that it's going to be in both books and shopping lists and things like that. Um, so uh, that's pretty much my entire life. Awesome. Yeah. For the next, um, we're, the the paleo approach should be going to the printer in the next few weeks. We're doing graphic design, and um, I'm actually doing a lot of the medical illustration myself right now. And um, that's just we're basically it's in copy edit, so we're just making sure that it's. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, Kayla and I uh, both know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the, the cookbook, yeah, is, is um, I'm taking the opportunity since the books are divided into to add some things that um, just weren't going to fit that I really wanted to include, um, like more how-tos and um, uh, more like just uh, – basics so you know for so that somebody who has very little experience in a kitchen can actually use the cookbook and make food out of it so trying to again sort of bridge that that gap for people yeah that's a huge problem we see in our clients they've never 
work. They've never cooked, and you're like, okay, now you have to make three meals a day, and they're like, oh, my God. Or they don't want to cook, and then you're like, and guess what? You can't have tomatoes, eggplant, potatoes, eggs, gluten, dairy, soy. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's, you know, it's hard enough following a standard paleo diet because it takes away all of, you know, it takes away so many convenience foods. But what few convenience foods are left are mostly taken away with the autoimmune protocol. And it it, it can become a real challenge for people who are, you know, trying to balance everything to find more time in the kitchen. So I'm hoping to be able to also provide people with strategies on how to optimize their time um, and how to do it not necessarily um, with, uh, you know, exponentially increasing their food budget, um, (laughs) which, you know, it could be hard to avoid, especially if you're tight on time because the best ways to save time in the kitchen are to spend more money. Um, but, uh, But I'm hoping to have all of that sort of really pulled together in the cookbook. Well, it'll save you a lot of medical costs later, so hopefully. Um, So we are so glad that you were able to come on, Sarah. It's been wonderful to hear your expertise. Thank you. I had a great time. And people can find you at thepaleomom.com, and you're always putting up something new, and uh, it's... And you will takes you a long time to read all the old stuff, so it's never ending over there. Yeah, there there is. A, it's it's built up over the last couple of years. There's quite a lot of information there now. And yeah, there's great info on um, more about what we talked about today, and I love the healthy dose of science combined with just practical information as well. Thank you. So we will let you get back to your family, and we just wanted to say. Uh, we're getting excited about our new guest coming. Jimmy Moore is going to talk about cholesterol clarity and how to talk to your doctor about cholesterol. And then we're going to have Neely from the Paleo Plan talking about carbs in, for athletes and in all different situations and how to use carbs in a, the proper way. So we thank you so much for joining us. And please leave us a review on iTunes and... Um, you can always leave us a question on our contact pages on maryvancenc.com and grassfedgirl.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good night.